The following program was pre-recorded on WFAN. It's time for Hello, My Name is Craig, our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction. It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you as always for the next 30 minutes, a frank, open, honest conversation about gambling addiction. As always, joining us, my partner, uh, Dan Trelaro. Dan is with Epic Risk Management. Good morning, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Craig. And joining us on the phone from uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, uh, is Lee V. Lee is also a gambler in recovery. Lee, good morning, and thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. If you don't mind me asking, how long has it been since your last wager? Uh, it's been almost six years. Congratulations. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank right, so you let's, so much. Uh, you know, I always like having women gamblers on the show because there is the notion that it's a problem that, you know, is a, it's a guy problem. Now, while there's certainly more men that gamble than women, you know, women are just as susceptible to the uh, disease and addiction of gambling as men are. When did you first start gambling? Oh, wow. I, I've gambled pretty much my entire life, but I, I didn't gamble compulsively my entire life. Sure. Um, uh, it started when we were younger with competitions at home, whether they were board games, this, that, you know, marbles, whatever it was. Um, and then I, again, in, in quotes, was normally gambling um, until it got out of hand, which was later in life. So, but so as a kid, nothing abnormal, like the normal American uh, childhood growing up, you know, you might you know, challenge a brother or a parent to something and there might be a payoff, but nothing that was totally untoward, right? No, nothing like that. Mm -mm. So you had a background in it, not even knowing that maybe you were gambling. And then how old were you when you started to gamble where it then became a problem? And what were you gambling on? Um, I was probably around 40 years old. Hmm. Um, I was gambling solely on slot machines and solely probably on two or three of them. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it, it started to, uh, progressively get out of hand and I got myself into a situation where I felt as though I had to go at some point so that I could gain back the winnings that I had, I'm sorry, that gain back the losses right. that I had spent so that I could be even ultimately. Looking back on it, when you first started to do it more frequently than you did prior in your life. Were you hiding from something? Was there something going on in your life that it was bothering you where the slot machines gave you solace or made you feel good? 100%. So, and, and most of this I learned, honestly, after joining sure. um, Gamblers Anonymous as well as, you know, private therapy. I also went to treatment out in uh, Minnesota. Um, so I learned a lot in the process. Um, I really immersed myself in my recovery. But what I found out is that basically I have an addictive personality in almost every aspect of my life, but that primarily in my earlier years, it was focused on work. So I was a workaholic. Um, and I would suppress most of the things that had happened to me um, throughout my life in some way, shape, or form. I'd suppress them. I'd normalize them. And then I actually worked my way up. I've always had a wonderful work ethic and um, fortunate for that. And then I, I actually worked my way up to um, the president of a company, um, and, and I really worked hard, right? And so then I got to a point where I didn't have to work as hard. I had more time on my hands. And with that time, all of these things came, you know, just barreling me over all these different emotions, all these different memories, and I didn't really know what to do with them, all these different um, 
situations that were coming back into my mind, and I could not turn my mind off. And I found that when I sat in front of these thought machines, it was the only thing that took my mind off of the other things, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. Uh, And without pressing too much, were were these traumatic things that happened when you were younger or just things that, you know, you never actually processed, you know, uh, health in a healthy manner? Honestly, they they were both. So when I was initially in treatment, um, I was asked if I had ever gone through anything traumatic, and my answer was no. Um, and and through continued questioning and assessments, um, I, I can break it down real quick. Um, I was sexually, physically, emotionally, verbally abused by my father, uh, as was my sister, as was my mother. Um, I was outcasted by him. I was shamed and guilted and, and, and all of that good stuff. I spent a very good portion of my life punished um, and in the home. And then I left um, my home at a very early age, about 14 or 15. I was living with a friend when I graduated high school. I then went into the military. I was raped in the military. Um, and, and so I just say this to say that I've, I've all of these things I had normalized and or said, you know, cognitively distortions and well, know, let me stop you. Maybe, maybe not even normalized it uh, and Dan I want you to jump in on this and this is just my word because we've similar backgrounds in that regard uh, compartmentalized it yeah. maybe more so than normalized it right Dan yeah yeah that's the word I was going to use too and you just kind of tuck it away and you just you just you put it away to that part of the brain where and you lock it and, and throw away the key and you're just not going to deal with that and compartmentalize is the exact word I was thinking of, Craig. So I'm going to take a guess here, Lee, and maybe I could be dead wrong. <laughs> you're not really good or you weren't really good, you know, sharing emotions, being in one-on-one uh, conversations and uh, letting other people see the depth of you. Is that fair to guess? Absolutely not. You know, showing any signs of weakness is how I was reared was was absolutely taboo. Um, You will never let anybody see you sweat. Um, And that's really how my life went when I when when everything came to a head when I was 45 years old. And, and, you know, we'll get into that, I'm sure at some point. um, Everybody was surprised. Everybody. Yeah, because you become a world class liar and hider of truth, even if you're not necessarily telling. Lying, manipulating. 100 percent. So when you start, uh, and again, you've clarity now you didn't have in the moment, so I totally respect that. But when you start playing slots more and more, give us an idea of how you define that. Was it every day you're in a casino? Was it three days a week when you did go? Were there like 18-hour marathons? How did you do it? Oh, well, I can tell you that easily. It, it was progressive, right? So I started out a couple of hours a night, you know, on a weekend. Um, and then again, it progressively got worse over time. So let's say if I, if I went on a weekend every now and then with my husband to just gamble, he never knew exactly how many times I went to the ATM. I was the sole breadwinner, um, because I made a a very good living as a president of the company. Um, and so it went from, let's say one or two weekends a month to eventually, uh, 72 hour stints. Um, every day gambling um, on my way to work, on my way back, not showing up at work, taking phone calls outside of the casino so it was quiet, 
um, doing a lot of emailing and texting as opposed to answering the phone, all that good stuff. So yeah, there was, you know, no, no self-care, um, multiple, you know, wouldn't go to the bathroom, wouldn't leave my seat, wouldn't want to, you know, jeopardize the loss of my machine, didn't want, you know, all of this good stuff. And, and I also, it was such lunacy. I was so was not in my right mind. I would set my alarm for two or 3 AM and I would leave because I also didn't want to be near anybody. I was very mm-hmm. isolating. I you know, I was not one of these flash gamblers. Look at me. I was an escape gambler completely. I was also, again, after that, dealing with depression, anxiety, um, some, you know, undiagnosed, dual diagnosis things that, again, sure. all of this came to surface after I immersed myself in my recovery. I, I mean, so. I really hate saying it, but it's like the female version of my life. I, I feel you. Yeah. I get every aspect of that. You know, when I was being a jackass, you know, wagering obscene amounts of money on the hands of blackjack, you know, it's contrary to what a lot of people think or what you see in casinos. I didn't want anybody to see me. I didn't. I felt actually really uncomfortable, especially because people knew who I was. You know, if somebody saw me at a table with, you know, a $15,000 hand, that I was deathly afraid that somebody would see that. I wanted no part of that. The more private I could gamble, the better for me. Like, if there's a private room, I wanted it. I did not want the attention for gambling. Um, Absolutely. So... As president of the company, you obviously had access to company funds. Did you ever go down that road where you started making, obviously you're making bad financial decisions with your own money. Did you ever uh, borrow, steal, or use company funds or other people's funds and get yourself in a bind or no? Absolutely. So after I had exhausted all of my funds, um, I absolutely helped myself to took advances on on future bonuses at first and would pay them back. Right. Um, and then ultimately, I was not winning, so I couldn't pay them back. And then I got myself su- in such a hole that I really felt the only way to get out of this hole was to win. And I had no sense of I truly had no sense of how much I was spending. All I knew was if I'm not coming back with big wins that I'm able to put back into the bank, this is not good. So it finally got to a point where I just, I literally was exhausted with robbing Peter to pay Paul, with juggling all the lies, with remembering who I told what to. My depression was off the charts and I became suicidal. And I thought, you know what? I put a plan together. I earmarked all of my life insurance policies, you know, circling the uh, suicide clause because I had you know, surpassed that. And so that wasn't an issue. I made a file on my computer that said death and wrote to my husband and said, these are the things you need to do. Cause I was also in charge of all bills, 401ks, investments, et cetera. Um, and yeah, and I just became suicidal knowing that that was the only way at that time I would be able to pay everybody back. And still, I was very well insured and still uh, leave my family enough money to live their lives in the way in which they were accustomed. I'm going to stop you there. This is very, uh, uh, I'm so glad you're sharing this story. Uh, Dan Chalara is always with us. Leaf down in Florida. This is Hello, My Name is Craig. Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. Uh, Dan Trelaro, Epic Risk Management. And uh, Dan, every now and then we have someone special like Lee who tells a story that you and I can just kind of shut up and listen. And I think this is one of those days when we left off, Lee, you uh, just told us how you had prepared uh, to die. Uh, the Absolutely. walls are caving in, the depression has set in, and you actually took painful steps to make sure that 
your debts would be paid and your husband and family would be okay financially. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because we do need to talk more about that because, you know, the suicide rates for gambling addicts is higher than any other addiction. Did you actually go through with the planning of how you were going to do it, when you were going to do it, where you were going to do it? Did you actually get that deep into it? Absolutely. Um, I had actually just had back uh, spine surgery a month prior, so I had um, pain pills, you know, and so my, my plan was to take these pain pills with alcohol. By the way, I don't do drugs um, or, or drink, which is also a drug, but I, I don't do any of that. Um, but this was my plan, and I, I was going to do it on Friday, the day that I actually placed my last bet. Um, I was going to do it that afternoon, I contacted my outside accountant from the company and I called him and I said, okay, here's the situation. Um, I need you to fly down this weekend. It was a Friday when I placed my last bet. I need you to fly down this weekend. I need you to be the executor of my will. And um, I'm going to go ahead and kill myself. And I've been taking money from the company and I need to do this so that I can pay everything back and, um, you know, sort of exit on, on a good note, because now, you know, people will know that I paid everything back. And he proceeded to, God bless him, he proceeded to, we haven't talked a moment since, but we, he, he proceeded to uh, try to calm me and say, okay, let me, let, me just, let me just see, you know, tried to talk me down, it wasn't working. And he said, all right, let me, let me go check on flights and this and that. He then hung up the phone with me. I found out subsequently that he picked up the phone, called an owner um, of the company, and, and that sort of unfolded from that point on. Wow. So that guy saves your life. Well, 100% and hasn't talked to me ever since. Is that hard for you to, uh, to, to uh, process that you haven't spoken to the man who saved your life? Um, not at all. And, and the reason it's not is because of, of my journey and, and what I've learned in recovery. So he is not at a place where he's ready to receive my, my um, amends, and, and I have to respect that. Yep. And I do respect it because I also understand that I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, now I'm in the know, and he's not there yet. Um, yeah. So, and he may never be, and and that's okay. Uh, I'm living my best life. I'm working a, a strong program, and I'm okay with that today. So, I'm so, more than okay with it. So, if, just to wrap up the story about you know you not going through with it, he calls the owner of the company, and I assume somebody rushes over to your house, apartment, wherever you're living. And saves you from yourself, makes you not do it, and you know it just doesn't end there. You know you're an adult; you can go wherever you want. Do they get you into a, you know, a, a hospital, a therapy program? Like, how did they actually go through the process of saving you? Oh, it's actually a very long, detailed story, but I will try to keep it as, as short as possible. So I worked for a privately owned company, um, and I actually, my, my sister also worked for the same ownership, different company. So he called an owner, owner called my sister, sister called me in hysterics, seven years my senior she is, mm. um, and she's an attorney, in-house uh, general counsel for the company, and um, she called me begging me to, um, again, she called a therapist that I used to see. She, she, she just begged me to please not do anything, give her X amount of time to put some things in order and blah, blah, blah. And she kind of tugged on some heartstrings because she had always helped me my entire life. And I was like, I could at least do this, right? Because I know I'm going to kill myself. So yeah, five minutes later is not a big deal, right? Another hour is not a big deal. Um, so yeah, so that's how it happened. And then she flew down. Um, my family rallied, my mother, my husband, my children. Um, 
uh, I called this 1-800-GAMBLING line. You know, I did right. everything that I could do in a last-ditch effort, in my opinion, to say, hey, I checked every box you asked me to check. Now I'm going to go kill myself. And fortunately, uh, you know, God had another plan for me, and I'm very grateful for that. So if that, that Friday's your last bet, you don't go through with, uh, you know, suicide you know, you're not well the next day. Like you don't, you you don't have your come to Jesus moment necessarily. You know, 24 hours later, and then decide life is worth living. You know, how long did it take you to get to a place, whether it's in GA or it's private therapy, to take ownership of having a problem and recognize that suicide was not the way out? I will tell you. So on Friday, I placed my last bet, made those phone calls. On Saturday, there was not a meeting that I was familiar with. I think on Saturday is when I called that 888 number. Um, a Sunday was my first meeting, and it was really on Sunday that I had planned on ending everything after the meeting. And I literally went into that meeting broken, hopeless, suicidal, and hysterically crying. And I left that meeting with hope. It was the most miraculous, life-changing thing. I, I found in the rooms this understanding, kindness, compassion, non-judgmental, and also hope that, you know, all of these people, different ages, different genders, um, different walks of life had, had really, they were laughing, they were hugging each other. And I went in saying, you know, oh, they don't know what I did. And then throughout this meeting and hearing the different therapies, they knew all too well what I had done. Some did worse, some did, you know, not as bad. And, and it just gave me a new, a, a new perspective and, and it gave me some hope that I didn't have. So I don't know exactly how long it took me from that point, but I I can tell you that with the love of the fellowship and the people in it and Arnie Wexler and, and different people, you know, throughout the program that have, I just heeded all the advice that was given to me. I was the, I was the yes man. I did whatever they, they told me to Dan, do. Dan, every time I hear a story, it's, it's so reminiscent of when I went to rehab and said, no one knows how I think. No one knows how I yep. process this. No one knows how I emotionally or mentally handle this. And every story I hear, man, woman, age is irrelevant. It's the same damn story. Like, we're all connected by this, you know, same exact way of processing this. Yeah, you know, it's so so funny. I think about that one of the six personality traits that lend itself to addiction is that nonconformity. You know, people Mm -hmm. who, who struggle with addiction... They, they don't conform. They think they're just, they were going to process everything differently. No one's going to get it. I'm different than you. But after spending the time with other people, you re- quickly realize, wow, there are people here. There's peer support. There's mutual aid. Like I, people get it. And then that takes that isolation and it turns it into relationships. And then that's what kind of fuels that, that desire, that hope. And that's sometimes all we need is just lighting that, that pilot light, right? I always think of it as a, as a pilot light. And once it takes off, boy, it can really do some wonderful things. So, Lee, you know, I, I usually like ending this show on a positive note because there are people, you know, who are exactly where you were six years ago, who don't know if they want to wake up tomorrow, who don't think there's any possible way of getting their finances in order, of making amends to the people they've hurt, et cetera, et cetera. We've all gotten to a place, fortunately, where we can speak to the fact that you can overcome all this stuff. You can repair you know, the damage, maybe not 100%, but a lot of it. And I, I would hope that you would, you know, speak to that person who's at day one of this, at step one, um, and let them know through your experience why you feel so strongly that they can get through day one and get to day two and year three and year six and on and on and on. I can absolutely do that. I can tell you that 
um, I've lived it, so I know um, I've not only lived it, and I'm not only a miracle of the program, but I've seen others. And um, I want to say this because I'm not proud of it necessarily, but it's part of my journey. So when I embezzled money from the company and had no idea how much that was, um, what happened was in my first four years of recovery, um, I was being investigated. I was, of course, working with them. I had admitted that I had done everything. I was working with the company. The long story short is that the company didn't want to hurt me in any way. However, um, they needed to, in order to get their money back, they needed to file a police report. Turns out, and by the way, they could have told me I owed $10 million because that it didn't matter. I, I just was, I was so far gone, I would have believed them. Right. So I never challenged what they said I owed. Um, so I went to this four-year investigation, and there were times, bumps in the road, where I wanted to give up and this and that, but the fellowship kept me going. My therapist kept me going. And so the long story short is, through that process where I was hopeless and broken, I not only had the support of the fellowship, but I also had guidance. So I was able to return to school during while I was being investigated, um, earn my master's degree, and now I've rededicated my life to um, I'm now a licensed psychotherapist specializing in gambling addiction and substance abuse addiction and behavioral addictions, et cetera, and so forth. And I also deal with dual diagnosis. So I've dedicated my entire life to really paying what I've been given forward. Um, and again, there, my, it was life-changing. Walking into that room, yes, there were other um, supplemental sort of resources that I used. I did go to treatment for 30 days in Minnesota. It was exclusively for gambling. Right. You know, I had to, I had to put the work in, but if you are committed, if you have a desire to no longer gamble, to take the unmanageable life and make it manageable, it is absolutely within your reach. All you have to do is listen to the people that came before you and did it. Is there any part of you that, their footsteps. is there any part of you that misses gambling? No, not one part of me. That's awesome. Well, That's listen, I I really appreciate you sharing your story. You know, you were a slots player, but it doesn't matter if it's slots or sports or, you know, keno or scratch-offs or blackjack. So I think it's really great that you're willing to share your story so publicly. And if I can ever return that favor, uh, I'm in. And I'm so glad wow. to hear that you're doing well, and I hope your family's still with you and uh, you guys are doing well together. And uh, keep it up because uh, we're really proud of what you've done. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate the opportunity to tell my story, and, and I will hold you to that because we're talking about a lot of different things in the work. So if, if we need you to uh, come on down and share your story, I sure would appreciate it. You, if you got it. I, if you guys have it uh, and I can get it's, uh, get down there on a weekend, count me in 100%. All right. Thank you so much for Thank your you, time. Lady. I appreciate it. All right. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Bye-bye. Dan, another, uh, I mean, amazingly powerful wow. and emotional story. I'm so glad she's willing to share it because to me, yeah. you know, we need to hear more stories like that. We need to humanize this, as you and I talk about all the time. And from the lowest of lows, like the depths of getting ready to die to six years later, having this amazing, you know, fruitful life where she helps other people is just awesome. That was just, I was just like, like you said, sometimes, you know, from time to time we get the guests on and it's just like, they just, have so much to share and such a journey just sit back and listen because there's so much there so for those of you that are listening to the show as dan and i always say have a plan if you're going to gamble we're not here to tell you not to gamble we're here to just tell you to have a plan be disciplined stick to that plan if it uh, helps you to have a wingman to make sure you don't do something stupid ask uh, one of your buddies to be that wingman for you and to never ever ever chase if you lose you lose Move on from it and don't get caught up in trying to chase bad decisions.
with more bad decisions, right, Dan? Yeah, and, you know, it, it just gets – it seems like it, for some people it gets harder each year because, you know, one thing you and I talk about is the marketing. I mean, the promos, the marketing. I mean, they're, uh, every operator is having that huge push. So it's easy for someone to say, all right, well, let me just try a little something out. And, listen, like Craig said, we're not against gambling at all. If you want to gamble, have a plan, do so responsibly, and don't chase. But if you're someone in recovery, if you're a person in recovery, seek out that friend Seek out someone else. You know, turn off the TV. It's okay. Do something else. Uh, go about life where the gambling no longer fits in and keep doing the things that have led to a, a good recovery thus far and definitely pick up the phone. You know, just pick up the phone if you're feeling some kind of way or if you're feeling a weak moment. Uh, you know, support is out there all the time. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I think that's the m- most important message. There's always somebody that's willing to answer the phone, so please yeah. use it and pick it up, especially if you're feeling uh, some sort of way that – you know, you know it doesn't doesn't jive or isn't right, um, or you know you feel depressed. By all means, pick up the phone. And as always, you can always call one eight hundred Gambler in New Jersey, twenty four seven. That phone will get answered for sure. Dan, as always, appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of the weekend, and we'll do it again next Saturday morning. Thanks, pal. Sounds great. Have a great week, Craig. This was hello. My name is Craig. Have a great weekend.